Welcome to California Haunt. This this episode of California Haunts Radio is kind of different because we're doing it from Zoom tonight. So I have a producer, Hui Ann's working for me as producer tonight. And uh, because I'm a Zoom virgin, I'm not used to doing multiple things on multiple tasks on Zoom. Anyway, I welcome you guys. We are the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team out of Sacramento. We are 35 strong up and down the state of California, Oregon, Washington, and we have people in Hawaii. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host tonight, and I am also the owner of the team. And tonight, I got a great guest for you guys. And what a lot of you guys don't know is I'm actually a journalist, and uh, I've, I was on the crime beat for six years, so this gentleman has piqued my interest. So um, his name is Peter Lance, and he has a story to tell because he's also an investigative journalist. So let's, Peter, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you very much, Charlotte, for having me on. I live on the West Coast. I live in Santa Barbara. So I'm haunting Santa Barbara on a regular basis. So to be on California haunts is like very auspicious. I want to live in Santa Barbara. Yeah, well, when you move here, they say welcome to paradise and there's good reason for that. But uh, anyway, um, I, uh, so tell, let's just talk. And then, and by the way, wait, I'm not, I lost my lower, my little lower third there. I don't know if it just- No, you're okay, I see you. You're fine. Oh, I mean, I'm not seeing PeterLance.com. My website. I see it right there. Sam pointing at it. We can see it. We can right see there. it. That's all that matters. Okay. Yeah, it I comes it. on when I talk. Is that how it works? It's there. It's there it's all there. the time. Oh, I see. It's okay. There all the time. Okay, great. That's because I'd like people to know. Uh, just getting off the bat, I'm shamelessly. This is the, the reason I'm on this program. I wrote Absolutely. this book called Homicide at Rough Point. It's glaring. It's a glaring book, and it's glaring right now on the camera. <laughs> Let me see if I can change the light a little bit to, so it's not to mess it up so much. Hold on one second. Put a little bit of a more mysterious look to the room. Oh, it's still the same. Okay. But you've seen- That's okay. You know what? When I, um, when I do the editing on this, I will add a, I, I will do a, yeah, a overlay. But to speaking of haunting, I guess this is appropriate. What you're, what this is on a side angle, maybe if I hold up the trade paperback, it'll look a little, now nah, it's the same thing. Oh, Don't wait. worry about it. I'll fix it. All right. I have one last shot I'm going to try here. I'm going to turn the light off. Uh, it's a little bit better. Okay. Now, now it's not. But, but I'm more. I'll fix it. Don't worry about dark. it. I like the dark look here for the haunting. The bottom line is that the cover has this mysterious gate, a, a massive gate on an estate in Newport, Rhode Island, which is where I grew up. And behind that estate in 1966 lived the wealthiest woman in America, Doris Duke, the heir to. American Tobacco, Alcoa Aluminum, and uh, Duke Power, which is now called Duke Energy. Fabulously wealthy billionaires, known for her violent temper, uh, very vindictive, very jealous. In 1966, I was a young cub reporter for the local paper, the Newport Daily News. And eight months earlier, she had crushed to death under the wheels of a two-ton station wagon. I'll try and talk to the camera if I can. I'm gonna try and get up a little bit here, okay. So she had crushed to death her longtime designer companion, Eduardo Torella, happened to be a gay man, uh, a war hero, a Renaissance man, incredible guy. Then literally minutes after he told her he was leaving her, he told her he, his, his Hollywood career was amping up. He was designing movies with Taylor and Burton and his life and he has partner Edmund Carroll was an important sculptor on the West Coast. So he tells Doris Duke he's leaving. <laughs> they have a big fight. And then minutes later, she crushes him to death. The local cops wrote it off in 96 hours, called it an accident. And she started giving tens of thousands of dollars to the city of Newport. My whole life, I, I was haunted by this story. Try to get to the truth. And like Charlotte, I'm a reporter. And over the years, I vowed um, someday I'm going to do the Doris Duke story. And I started in 2018. Uh, and it took me two years. I proved she committed murder. There's this piece in Vanity Fair last August. I had an 8,000 word piece. And then I said, why not write a book in six months? Oh, okay. And I Peter, did. And now I'm the book is out. You. So uh, anyway, the book is out. It's a, there's an audible, a Kindle, a trade paper, and a hardcover. I recommend the hardcover. And that's Peter, enough plug look, yeah, for me now. Yeah, for now. you're perfect. Actually, look, look straight. Okay, look up. Look straight. No, at no, the no. Turn around. Turn your face to the. Yeah. There. there we go. Okay, that's where you want to be looking at. That's what you. It you seems like at. you know yeah. what? Can I say one no, thing? That's I okay. think it's. Wait. Well, let me just say one thing. I think it's because it's picking up my. Um, it's picking up the. Uh, let me just see if it's I do. Perfect this. where it is right now. 
just face oh, no, uh, yeah it's better with the other camera isn't it you're right it's more flattering with this that that camera okay now look look straight that with multiple cameras turn, turn i'm impressed to the right of it turn your face to your left of it that's it no i mean i can see it. i i see where it is now you see my little emmy awards up there in the corner i There's do some, uh, it's another shameless act of self-promotion on my part <laughs> but anyway okay so i i feel good can i just lean back in my chair drink go for it just relax and let's do it yeah let's do it but i could take my glasses off because i don't think i have to read anything so so that's how you got that's how you want to do it i know there's a couple of cases i'm thinking about doing that with as well so um how did you i'm obviously you're a journalist so how did you go about doing the research on it and everything well Interestingly, the, uh, there's a Facebook group, and I think we're on Facebook tonight, or we're going to be at some yeah, point. Yeah, we're on Facebook tonight right now. Good. So uh, there was a Facebook group, it still is a really a passionate group in Newport called If You Grew Up in Newport, Rhode Island, Share Some Memories. And uh, there's like 10,500 members of this group, and they're very people that grew up there or lived there. There was, a, there was a big Navy base, so many people over the years moved in and out of Newport which is one of the most amazing little towns on earth. And uh, I'm not just saying that because I'm from there, it really is. And, uh, and so what happened was about four times a year, uh, Charlotte and uh, Andrea and whoever else decides to join and way, about four times a year, the, uh, somebody would post a crash photo of the, the, the death scene of where this happened. This station wagon crashed against a tree across from her estate. And people would come out of the woodwork with rumors. Oh, she got away with murder. She bought off the police chief. He bought an island in Italy. He lives near Key, uh, Nixon in Key Biscayne, Florida. You know, just a million rumors. And and uh, and then she did start. She was very stingy, but she started shelling money out to the town. And she actually restored seventy colonial buildings in Newport, colonial era buildings that helped to resuscitate Newport as a tourist town after President Nixon mercilessly closed much of the Navy base in 1973. The town was on the verge of bankruptcy. So I call this a murderous quid pro quo. In other words, she gets away with murder in turn, she saves the town economically. That's the essence of it. And so I, uh, I always wanted to do it. And then when Trump made his famous statement, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and I wouldn't lose any votes. Remember that? That was in mm -hmm. 2016. One day I had just finished adapting a cup. My middle career was in Hollywood and I was, I worked on a lot of cop shows, Miami Vice, Crime Story, Jag, Wise Guy, you know. And so uh, I basically returned to journalism after 9-11. I wrote four really gnarly books for HarperCollins on counterterrorism and organized crime. So I had the skill, you know, finally I had the, the chops to be able to go back and do a story like this. I start with the Facebook group and you wouldn't believe it, Charlotte, the people came out of the woodwork. Uh, I was there that night, or I remember I was nine years old. My, it happened at five o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, so it was still light out in October of 1966. Mm -hmm. And I began to work the people. Then I found ex-cops who had uh, worked, worked the scene and they all told me what they knew. They knew fragments of the story. And then I finally located the son of the photographer that took these amazing photos. Uh, and his name was Ed Quigley and he worked at the Daily News when I was there. This, he, this was the job that got him the staff job in the Daily News. He, he lived nearby and he got there within minutes. He took these amazing shots and his photographs helped me solve the crime. Wow. Yeah, so uh, his, in fact, his, his stepson, John Quigley, is in Newport right now with his wife, Jane McGuire. They always go up to celebrate St. Patty's Day in Newport, and uh, they are amazing people. So uh, there were, but, you know, part of the story and part of the mystery here, which makes it a haunting story, to you, if I can use a coin of phrase, a haunting story. What makes it really fascinating is that Doris Duke, with this billionaires, and by the way, in 1966, you know how wealthy she was? She was making $1 million a week in interest on her fortune. She could just stand in the corner of a room and not even move for a week, and she'd be a million dollars richer. $1 wow. million a week in interest. So she had uh, this battery of uh, like lawyers and private investigators and minions and PR guys. 
and they would go in and sanitize the record, clean up the record of her troubled life. So for example, the day after this happened, my own, my paper to be the Newport Daily News, the one I used to throw on porches when I was 10 years old, I delivered it first and then I wrote for it. That paper had a incredible shot underneath the wagon as it was crashed against the tree. So you could see the rear axle and there was a strange substance on the ground, which I later confirmed was blood. It was Torella's blood. And when I went to Newport for my first trip, I went to the archive of the Newport Daily News at the Historical Society. And so they had all of the negatives of the Daily News for years lined up in these beautiful boxes. And every, every um, photo that appeared in the Daily News for the certain number of years of the archive would be in a slot in the box in, in chronological order of where it appeared in the paper. So if it was page one, you know, you could just find the negative and get it reproduced. Well, all the negatives for like, I, I went back a week, a week before and a week after all the negatives for that week, uh, which would have been, or that day, October 8th, 1966, all of them were there except that picture had been selectively the negative removed, all right? And we later found out why, because it shows essentially blood. So uh, when, Ed, when I got to John Quigley, the, the grandson who lives on Long Island with his wife, Jane, I said, John, please tell me, do you have any of Ed's photos? Do you have any negatives or anything? And he goes, Peter, I have a basement full of them. I'm like, what? Dude, you gotta get down there, man. You gotta work, see, to help me out here. And he and Jane lovingly went down there for weeks and weeks. And she actually found a, a print of the shot I was looking for, not even a negative. She found that it, was, it had been printed and preserved. It looked great. And so that was in the, when Vanity Fair ran the story last July, August issue. And the, the story is the same as the title of the book, Homicide at Rough Point, okay? That's the, that's the title of the book. And that was the Vanity Fair piece. And now it looks a little easier. I, uh, let's glare like that. There you go. Yeah. That's the gate. That's the gate which she crushed. She blew through that gate. She. They were leaving the estate. Eduardo go out. Got out of the car to open the gate. She slid behind the wheel, threw it into gear, removed the parking brake, unleashed the parking brake, and rah, 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 leaving you know like gouges in the gravel, and then hit him. Blew through these gates. Damaged the gates. And then I'll get a little bit later in the program, I'll tell you how I know it was murder. But so John Quigley's stepdad, he took the photo, he didn't take this photo. This is taken by another man named Jerry Taylor the next morning. But if you could see the cover and you go to peterlance.com, my website, you'll see everything you need, like close-ups of everything. And if you obviously order the book, you'll see that the gates were mangled. There, there were these, there, they were 15 feet high, seven feet wide. And they had these baluster rungs. Of, they were an inch thick of, of like wrought iron, really heavy gates. And when the, this two-ton wagon blew through uh, the gates, uh, the, the basically seven of these rungs were broken off. That's the, and the gates were bent. And then so they blew out like that. And then the next day they were pushed back in. And that's when that photo was taken. But the, the Quigleys, in one of the photos they found, there was a heavy set man uh, to the right of the gates, working the gate, working the crime scene, essentially, right? A few minutes after it happened, his name was Fred Newton. And I had done an article on Fred Newton uh, the next year when I worked there as a cub reporter. He used to train all the recruits. And I went, wait a minute, is that Fred Newton? They go, yeah, yeah, it's, you know. And, and he had <clears throat> passed away, but he ultimately became chief of the department. And I discovered through the first young cop on the scene that Fred Newton had solved the crime, but he was prevented from telling the truth because the corrupt police chief cut a deal with Doris that allowed her to get away with murder. So how did you, um, you know, when you started to, 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 you know, to gather all this information, you had to deal with the police at some point, right? I had to deal with the contemporary police, but, you know, this is 50... When I was starting the investigation, it was 52 years after the fact. Now it's 54. And the current police uh, chief in Newport, a guy named Silva, S-I-L-V-A, was completely uncooperative. He didn't want to know about this. And, I, and, and one of the best biographers of Doris Duke is called, 
Her name is Stephanie Mansfield. She used to be a reporter for the Washington Post. And there are many biographies. I read every biography there was. I, I read virtually every article ever written about Doris Duke as I you know, researched the book. The book has 60 pages of endnote annotations. It's incredibly well documented, if I do say so. And uh, anyway, Stephanie Mansfield uh, wrote a letter to Torella's sister, Anita, who's passed, since passed away in 1990. 1990, she, her book came out in 92. She said, I've been trying to find the police report, but it's missing from the department. Do you have it? Of course, Anita didn't have it. And so that's, you know, that's some evidence that as early as 1990, this famous murder, which you'd think the cops would have held on to this case, right? Okay, mm -hmm. unless yeah. there had been foul play on their part. And uh, anyway, the current chief, Gary, uh, Chief Silva, I wanna say Gary Silva, I think that's his name. Anyway, he was he was uncooperative, let's put it like that. And there are other aspects. I mean, I could go on for five minutes about just how I found the police report because I found it eventually. And the police report dovetailed 100% with just, not 100%, but 95% with what I had already concluded by talking to a million witnesses and you know going through 10,000 pages of annotation. When I say a million, I mean, you know, probably, almost 100 source witnesses are in the book and about 10,000 pages of documentation, including over 1,000 pages from the Rubenstein Library at Duke University, where all of Doris's papers are, are kept. And that's another way I was able to, to you know, put the pieces of the puzzle together. So what you're saying um, after finding that police report is they literally had all the evidence in front of them. And I, I guess she bought them off or, or however you want to say it, right? Well, so let me let me uh, put it in perspective. The police chief at the time, Newport's a very Irish town, uh, although it's you know it, it's, it was founded on the scourge of slavery, the triangle trade of molasses, slaves, and rum. Newport was one of the wealthiest town prior to the revolution, American Revolution, uh, and uh, there's been a major black community in Newport ever since, descendants of slaves and. Uh, I'll get to that in a little bit because I wrote uh, a, a series, uh, uh, an expose, my first real journalism in 1968, in the second year I was at the Daily News, I wrote a series called Newport's Backyard about this, this, this essentially a ghetto in the town where the, uh, black people were living uh, in incredible slum conditions and the city had done nothing to enforce the housing code to ensure that the houses were safe and habitable. And uh, I did that series, name names, name the names of slumlords, and it really shook up the town. They, they immediately set up an escrow fund so that the residents of the houses could put their rent money in escrow at City Hall until the slumlords fixed them up. And then they created a, a housing church community housing corporation, similar to what Jimmy Carter does with Habitat to Humanity. And they began building houses for the people in the neighborhood who were able to get them at no interest and then with pride of ownership, fixed them up. And many of the people to this day live in those houses. And it's a much better neighborhood now. It's a beautiful neighborhood. And Newport has a rich African-American heritage. But the chief was Italian in a town that was essentially dominated by the Irish at the time. But his name was Joseph Radice, R-A-D-I-C-E. And he was a bulldog. He'd been on the job for 41 years, uh, started as a patrolman. And he ran that the department with an iron hand. In fact, Bill Waterson, one of the uh, officers I interviewed, who's you know was a, a retired detective inspector, uh, I said, Bill, do you have any doubts that Radice covered this up? And he said, There's no if, ands, or buts about it. But Peter, you have to understand, he he, this guy was so powerful that if you bucked him in any way, he just ripped the badge off your chest and you were gone. That's the way he ran the department. So it was Radice. Uh, conspiring with other high-level members of the department with Duke's lawyers that I proved uh, entered into a conspiracy to let her off the hook. And I can talk about how I proved that in yeah. addition to proving the murder. Uh, yeah. But anyway. Um, what was the motive for her to kill him? Well, I believe ultimately the motive was jealousy that he was leaving her. But uh, in fact, after I wrote the article in Vanity Fair, 
And you know, you can't get into a person's head for sure. And it, right. far be it for me to get into Doris Duke's head, but I put together a pretty good profile based on all the books of her, uh, you know, and she was a notorious Scorpio. She was born on November 22nd, very jealous. She had stabbed her common law husband, Joseph Armand Castro, who was a Mexican-American brilliant jazz musician and band leader, pianist. She'd stabbed him with a butcher knife, 150 stitches in 1963, three years earlier, uh, because she was playing, she, she loved jazz and she fancied herself a performer. And she was playing at their, um, their estate in Los Angeles, uh, one of her four major estates. And he made some crack about her piano playing. And they, there was a lot of booze and barbs involved in their relationship. You know, they had this roller coaster trajectory for like almost 10 years. And uh, she just grabbed a butcher knife and slashed his arm, 150 stitches. And she got away with that one. She basically, he, he sued her. He, she threw him out of uh, the, the house they were living in called Falcon Lair, which is the old Rudolph Valentino estate in, in, in uh, Bel Air. And uh, she threw him out on New Year's Day, January 1st, uh, 1964. The stabbing happened in 63, earlier in the year. And he sued her for assault and battery, uh, 150,000 in damages. Uh, he wanted 5,000 a month alimony and he wanted to have, uh, or alimony essentially spousal support. And then he also wanted the common law marriage affirmed because he alleged that they had actually done, had gone through wedding ceremonies twice over the time. And so what she did through her lawyers, uh, he happened to be in Hawaii at the time. She had him kidnapped. He was literally shanghai in Hawaii, off the streets and taken to her state, Shangri-La, which is this gorgeous now uh, Islamic themed estate in uh, Diamond Head and Honolulu. And they held him incommunicado, Charlotte, for like several days. And they worked on him and worked on him. And he finally agreed to renounce, renounce his lawyer in LA and betray his lawyer, drop the suits, and she promised him that she was going to put him in the will. She set up a, a recording company for him, uh, Clover Records, uh, and did various other things to placate him. So he came back and, he, you know, the lawsuits were dropped. But that's the kind of tactic she used. Wow. I mean, imagine kidnapping somebody off the streets. And her, the, the lawyer in L.A. was an ex-FBI agent named Hughes. And he was so audacious or dumb, depending on how you look at it, that he typed the letter that was supposed to be from Joe to renouncing to, to his lawyer in LA, a guy named Brown, a good lawyer. The letter was typed on the same typewriter that Hughes used for his legal pleadings with respect to the lawyer Brown. So, I mean, it didn't even either occur to him to hide the fact that he was conspiring. And by the way, I have a law degree, if you don't hold that against me, and it's absolutely against the canon of ethics in any state to communicate, let alone kidnap, <laughs> uh, you know, somebody who's represented by counsel. That's like really against the rules. That's like a cardinal rule. You don't do that. And, and they did it. So she knew she could get away with that. And she also later in various documents that I uncovered, she actually uh, encouraged him. Uh, well, actually, uh, one of these documents was the affidavit of, of lawyer Brown, who sued, you know, basically civilly to, you know, recover some of what he felt he had lost in the, in the representation of Joe. And he says in the sworn uh, deposition transcript that I read that, um, uh, you know, uh, Castro was basically uh, uh, cheated, you know, I mean, because in the end he got nothing. He was just, you know, and he finished out his career at uh, the Tropicana in Las Vegas. He was a renowned band leader. And he, and he married a beautiful young singer named Loretta Haddad. So he got kind of got his revenge. He was, I think, 13 years younger than Doris, but she was that kind of jealous. And when Eduardo, with, 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 you know, he was gay. And as far as I could tell, he wasn't bisexual, nor even if he was bisexual, I don't believe knowing what I know about him. And I've become kind of an expert in Eduardo, who was an amazing guy that he would have allowed himself to have sex with Doris because one of two things would have happened. Either he would have pleased her and she'd never let him go, or he would have disappointed her, at which point he would have been gone too mm -hmm. soon. And so he wanted to extricate her, himself from her after he had done all this amazing work for her and was severely underpaid. And uh, however, after I wrote the article in Vanity Fair, I got this 
a, a email from a, an individual named, uh, I won't give you his name right now, but he said, Peter, I was her lover after she killed that guy. Would you like to talk? And I said, yeah, I'd like to talk. And he was a big game hunter, this amazing guy, former uh, gunner in the RAF during World War II, the Royal Air Force. He was Irish, very credible guy. I checked him out. Uh, He's 90 years old. He had the constitution of a 60 year old. He sounded great on the phone. He had a steel trap mine. His memory was precise. And he basically said that uh, every year from June till October during the monsoon season in the Himalayas and, and other places where he would hunt tiger and things like that, he would take the, the time off, five months off every year, okay, and play. So he happened to be in Hawaii in 67, like this is like maybe 10 months after she killed Eduardo. And uh, Doris met him at a party. They went home that night. They were inseparable for the next uh, five months. And during that time, he got more and more uh, wary of her. And he said she was incredibly jealous, incredibly vindictive. I just wanted to get away from her. Mm -hmm. And he said, I told her I was leaving. And she said, if you walk out that door, don't come back. And he said to me, and I thought to myself, great, you know, <laughs> that's okay with me. And then I said, so did she ever mention Eduardo? And he said, oh, yeah. She told me she killed him. And I said, what? And so this is what he told me. He said that apparently in pillow talk one night, they were you know, discussing what happened. And, uh, and Doris said to him, uh, uh, he said, I'll never forget her words. And I said, what did she say? He said, she said, um, he got what was coming to him. Nobody two times me, nobody two times me. Like, what does that mean? Well, his partner, Edmund Cara, Doris, not only had met him because they, they, they had an incredible house in Laurel Canyon, he and Edmund, but they had another house up in Big Sur in Northern California, closer to where you are, I reckon. And, uh, and so uh, Edmund was a sculptor of natural wood. In fact, he, he sculpted the nude bust of Liz Taylor in this famous film, The Sandpiper, that was uh, shot in 1964 in Big Sur, which Eduardo not only did designed Liz's a beach house in the film, but he also was had a cameo role in the film, and uh, and and Edmund Cara did this bus. So so basically, Doris had been up there. She'd met Edmund. She'd even hired Edmund to do a, some design work for her in LA. So she couldn't have been jealous of Edmund. And by that point, Edmund and uh, and uh, Eduardo were late, kind of in their relationship, and they were more friends than anything else. You know what I mean? They were mm -hmm. both in their late thirties, early forties, but. And I can't say for sure, but there was a very beautiful young man that was uh, a, a painter who was, that Eduardo was kind of smitten with at the time. And I interviewed him, he's still alive. And he told me that they, he spent a weekend with Edmund and uh, Eduardo and Doris at Rough Point. So she clopped her eyes on him. Now he and Eduardo, he swore to me, they, they just were buddies, they were friends and they'd go cruising together and et cetera, but they never, you know, they weren't lovers at all. Uh, however, that's, you know, Doris Duke didn't know that or didn't, who knows, who knows what was in her head. When she saw him, I believe that might've been the peak, piqued her jealousy, but in any case, nobody two times me. And then, uh, and, and you add that to the fact that she, he just wanted to get away from her and nobody leaves left Doris Duke without consequences. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I can't, again, you know, I'm much more, um, my, my forensic research is impeccable. I can't really speculate on what was really in her mind, but mm -hmm. jealousy is one of the most toxic and oldest motivations for homicide there is. Uh, so. That's incredible. And then the way she took him out, it reminds me of um, Baby Jane. That scene in Baby Jane when, 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 she, when she runs her sister over. Did you did you actually read my book before you said that, or are you actually saying it? Because that is in my book. I'm just saying that. See, I'm a journalist. Oh, wait a second, Charlotte, you you rock. Okay, let me tell you. <laughs> let me tell you what what happened uh, after this uh, after the incident in October of '66. Sheila Graham was a very famous columnist at the time, you know, international columnist Sheila Graham. And sometime, I think it was sometime in the fall after this happened, she wrote a column, which is in my book. And she said, you know, what happened with Eduardo Torello was eerily similar to the plot of whatever happened to Baby Jane. Now, I hadn't seen that film since high school. It, since it came out in like 62. It was like four years before this incident, okay? 
And in the film, I'll refresh to the, whoever ends up watching this thing, the viewers, uh, what happens is uh, it, Betty Davis plays a young child star named Baby Jane. So it opens, it kind of flashes back to her, you know, career as a young, very famous child star. And then as she got older, she kind of lost her luster or whatever. And then her sister played by Joan Crawford was the big star, okay? In the way the movie opens. And, uh, and Joan is fiercely jealous to this day, even though she's the star, she's very jealous of her sister. So they're driving home one night and Betty gets out to open the gates of what is described in the movie as the old Valentino place, Falcon Lair. I mean, what? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's where Doris lived with it. That's where she stabbed, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Joe Castro. So, so Sheila Graham kind of speculated, is it possible that Doris had seen that movie and maybe got an idea from it? And I thought to myself later, only after I had re seen the film again and, and you know, and, and looked at looked at everything together. And you're very, very sensitive and omniscient for even saying this. I thought to myself, you know, this was obviously an accident, started as an accident, or maybe a manslaughter that veered out of control. Maybe she decided, you know, I don't want this guy to leave, so I'm just gonna you know, tap him against the brakes. Maybe he'll break his leg. Because in the movie, as you know, Betty Davis is crippled. She lives, she's in a wheelchair. And the rest of the movie is like a Gothic horror movie where <laughs> Betty Davis and Joan Crawford are old ladies now and they're going at each other tooth and nail, okay? So I thought to myself, and this is pure speculation, right? right. But I, I wondered, and now, you know, I said to myself, is it possible that Doris Duke thought, well, maybe I'll just, you know, do something to him to, to debilitate him in some way where he's really has to stay with me now. Okay. And, uh, and, and then, but so let me tell you what really happened if I may now, what, what I, the crime that was solved. So what happened was uh, according to Sergeant Newton, but let me go back and talk about how I learned this first. There was a young officer that night. The first officer on the scene's name was Edward Angel, Eddie Angel, great name, right? For a, a cop to come onto a scene of an accident. And uh, he's the cousin of a, of, a, of a Linda Angel who lived two blocks from me growing up, who I had a crush on in junior high. You know, it's a small town, Newport. So anyway, Eddie Angel uh, had only been on the job a year and he, he had the, the Bellevue Avenue beat, which is the street where it happened. She lived in this incredible estate at the end of Bellevue Avenue that, and then Bellevue Avenue takes a 90 degree turn and becomes what's called the Ocean Drive. And there are all these amazing mansions, which they call summer cottages around the drive. But she's got the incredible location right on the corner overlooking the Atlantic and um, 10 acres, uh, 30 room estate built by one of the Vanderbilts. Anyway, so um, Eddie Angel, uh, by the, when he hears uh, what happens is a guy named Man Hanley is driving by and he sees the car, when she went through the gates across Bellevue Avenue, which is 80 feet wide, she went up and, she, and the, 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 with such force that the wagon basically blew through 20 feet of post and rail fence and ended up parallel to her estate up against the tree. So if you were going down Bellevue on, the, on the, your left-hand side, you'd see these gates blown open. And on the right, you just see a white Dodge Polara 1966 station wagon against the tree with its the front end completely crumpled and kind of up like this. So uh, uh, this cop arrives and Doris is still in the driver's seat. And he was a young rookie and, and he looked and he saw that there was a body underneath the back or maybe a living person, he didn't know. And he had no idea who the guy was. He knew this was probably a rich lady. I don't even know that he knew it was Doris Duke right away. And so he, he blurted out, he said, Peter, I blurted out, there's a guy under there. And she just freaked out. She opened the door and started running back and forth hysterical in the Bellevue Avenue. And this young Navy nurse arrived uh, who had just been commissioned at the Newport Naval Base the day before. Her name was Judith Tom, T-H-O-M. Her father was a Mil Milwaukee cop and her mother, and they were, and they were gonna drive back to uh, with, you know, Wisconsin uh, the next day. And so they were going on a sightseeing tour around the Ocean Drive before it got dark. So Judith jumps out 
and I interviewed her and I tracked her down. Her name is Judith Tom Wartko. She had over 30 years as an EMS worker after she got out of the Navy, incredible woman. And so Doris ran, started running into the estate and she followed her in and followed her out, et cetera. That's another part of the story. But Eddie Angel now is on the scene and uh, and he's, you know, he realizes this, that it, like it was another cop said, he was like wrapped up around the axle. That's how he was instantly dead. Ooh. Massive damage to his upper body. He had a broken hip, but everything else below his waist was intact. His legs were not broken, et cetera. And that becomes an important clue in a little bit when I tell you ultimately what happened. But uh, he was just destroyed. Uh, and so what, what uh, Eddie Angel, after every, you know, the world arrived, every, all the, you know, two rescue wagons, one took his body to Newport Hospital, another one took her to Newport Hospital. She was locked away that night in a private room. The medical examiner for Newport County, Dr. Philip McAllister, allowed himself to be hired by Doris as his, her private doctor, and he locked her in a private room so the state investigators could not get to her. I mean, come on, talk about a cover-up, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, so Eddie, after everybody has kind of things have calmed down and the scene is relatively quiet, he decides he's going to, he has to file a report and he's going to kind of do a diagram of what he thinks happened. So he walks into the middle of Bellevue Avenue or about a third of the way into Bellevue from where the gates blew out on the estate across from where the ultimate crash was. And he sees skin and blood, Charlotte, in the street human remains. He sees blood and skin. There's no trail of blood or skin from the gates. He sees it in the middle of this or, you know, pretty close to the middle of the street. So his theory was initially, well, she must have hit a pedestrian. She must somehow she lost control of the vehicle. It blew through the gates. And this guy was maybe crossing the street. And she hit him because that was the POI, the point of impact as he saw it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, he writes that up. And now we go back to this guy, Fred Newton, the, the guy I mentioned that showed up in the picture who I had done the article about uh, months or, uh, later, the following year. And so Fred Newton is the chief accident investigator. So when Ed, Ed, Eddie Angel files his report, the next day, Fred Angel, before he was about to go on duty at five o'clock again, Fred, uh, Fred, William, uh, Fred uh, Newton says, hey, kid, you got it wrong. Meet me up there. I'll tell you what happened. You got, you got it wrong, you know, thinking that she hit a pedestrian. So they meet up there and now the chief had already announced charlotte at that point the next virtually the next day the chief announced that she crushed eduardo against the gate that she somehow lost control of the vehicle she crushed eduardo against the gate and then you know basically yeah let me just see if i can fix the light a little bit here i don't know if it makes any difference okay uh and that uh ultimately uh you know uh he was killed now okay well, what happened is the chief takes them up. They look at they go, the gates are, are inward now, but they can get in and look. There's not a bit of blood on the gates, nothing on the ground below the gates, nothing indicating that the car did any damage, that, that somehow a human being was crushed against the gates, like the chief said. Uh, so this is what Fred Newton's theory was. And it turns out that this is actually a phenomenon that happens many times if people that there's an oncoming vehicle and people are looking at a car about to hit them, they will jump up on the hood of the car. They'll try and get up. If they can't go left or right to avoid mm -hmm. it, they'll literally jump up on the hood. It's a syndrome. And I actually had all of my forensic evidence was examined by one of the top forensic and engineering firms in America. And the guy who did the analysis absolutely agreed of what, about what Fred Newton is told Eddie and I'm about to tell you happened. So his theory was that Doris, Eduardo walks over, they had a chain wrapped around the gates. It wasn't even locked, it was in the afternoon. He goes to open the gates, she slides over. Now she makes four affirmative acts, intentional acts before the car moves forward. One, she slides over behind the wheel, you know? Two, she, uh, the car was in a uh, park with the parking brake on. So she, number two, she, she had the, the parking brake release was on the uh, literally under the dash. So she had to release it intentionally with her hand to release the brake. Then she puts the, the stick was on the wheel. It was a gear shift on the wheel, conventional. She shifts it into gear and then, and then by the way, the, the accelerator 
uh, uh, pedal was like vertical and the brake was like this. And that this is the way my hands look in proportion to each other. That's how big they were and how different they were. You could not mistake that she later said, oh, I, 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 I thought I was hitting the brake, my hand, my foot slipped onto the accelerator. No, no, nobody could rationally do that. And, and, and when the registry of motor vehicles guys tested the, oh, the brake and everything the next day at the garage where they towed the truck, everything was in perfect working order. It was not a malfunction of the vehicle. So what happens is, according to Fred Newton, she roars forward, Eddie turns, he sees her in horror, he jumps up on the hood. Now he's staring at Doris, probably staring through the window because the indication was that he had turned around because he probably heard her for a second because she left these gouge marks in the gravel. And uh, he's up on the hood. She blows through the gates, all right, with him on the hood, but alive. And then for unknown reasons, according to Fred Newton's theory, she taps the brakes, has a moment of hesitation, and he rolls off. He's now on the street. He's, he's got a broken hip, but he's otherwise alive, and he's probably scared out of his mind. What is he saying? Doris, Doris, help me. What? What's going on? Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. And did she get out of the vehicle and, oh, my God, Eduardo, let me let me call for the caretaker and scream and get the, re the rescue whack. No, she, thousand one, thousand two, thousand three, we don't know how many seconds went by. And she thought, to, in my opinion, she thought to herself, I, I can't get it in her head, but I'm just going to say this is what I think she thought. I'm Doris Duke. I got away with the last thing with Joe Castro and I'm going to get away with this one. And she just, wham, whether she had, whether when she tapped the brake, she put it into park temporarily and then had to put it back into gear or whether she just, you know, had her foot on the brake, but she clearly, and then she crushed him to death. She roared this two-ton wagon over him and dragged his body like 40 more feet, hit a, a curb. So he's hitting a curb as he's dra dragged under the vehicle. And then she blasts onto through 20 feet of post and rail fence and ends up at this tree. And the engineer that analyzed the case for me said, it was a double sequence event. And I said, well, what's that mean? He said, well, if it was a single sequence events, he would probably would have lived. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, single sequence events is she roars forward, he jumps on the hood, he's holding onto the hood, she blows through the gates and just keeps going. And he gets to get across the street by inertia of motion. He's kind of held on to the, he's probably gripping the, you know, around as much as he can, the, the windshield. And then she hits and he probably would have bounced off into the bushes across the street. He might've been, in, had more injuries, but he certainly would have not sustained the damage that he did. A double sequence events, which is what Fred Newton concluded, is that when she tapped the brakes, now this is a second sequence. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And then she just, crushes him to death. And the ironically, the autopsy report had been missing for years, filed under the wrong name. I got that through Donna Lohmeyer, this remarkable woman who's the niece of Eduardo, who I was able to find. And she turned, you know, she'd been waiting for 50 years for somebody to tell the truth about her uncle. And she was turned into the best researcher I ever worked with in my entire career, including ABC News. She was amazing. And, and so she actually got that report from the state of Rhode Island. Uh, and then uh, I got the police report through other means, but uh, basically uh, there was a death certificate shortly thereafter that I also got And in retrospect, and they're all in the book. All of these documents are in the book. If you're a forensic junkie, if you're a true crime junkie, homicide at rough point. That's, see Peter Lance, do I point here? See that little thing right there with my name? Mm -hmm. PeterLance.com. <laughs> I'm definitely going to read this book. I'll tell you that right oh, now. Well, you already guessed like a huge part of it with the, the baby Jane reference. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, and you have me back, you know, after you've read it, let's get, let's, let's, let's get, do that. Let's yeah. I, yeah I'm yeah, for like, it. You know what? You can spend some time. We can get 50 people on the, on the show at that point. Absolutely. Little, little boxes. But anyway, so the bottom <laughs> line is uh, she, uh, you know, Basically, uh, the death certificate that I have in the book basically gives all of his 
injuries. And I, I got it early on in the investigation before I knew about Fred Newton's theory. And I thought, well, this is wild. I mean, he's got all these, you know, upper body injuries. And then I got the two shots of the gate. The, okay, I want to try and do this one more time without too much uh, glare. Okay. You see that? I think that's pretty, you know, visible. That's the, those are the gates the next day closed in. And I have another shot by the same photographer named Jerry Taylor that show the gates in the morning and you can see backlit, you know, there's light behind them. And you can see that the only damage to the gates is from the waist down. The only damage to Eduardo is from the waist up. So she never could have crushed him against the gates as the chief said. But the, by fact that the chief said that is part, part and parcel to the cover-up. Now there's mm -hmm. one, one other amazing thing that proves police corruption here. So uh, I was talking to, uh, a lawyer in Newport named Bill O'Connell, whose older brother, Jimmy, I went to high school with, and his brother, James O'Connell, is a famous doctor who, who, uh, who uh, ministers to the poor, the street people of Boston. He's went to Harvard Medical School. He's internationally known. He's written books. He's an amazing guy, the, just the number one guy in my high school growing up, De La Salle. And his brother, Bill's a lawyer, and I was talking to him because he had said something in the Facebook group, you know? And he said, you know, when I took the bar exam in, in Rhode Island, uh, you know, you take a course to prepare you for the bar. And the guy that was teaching uh, the class on wrongful death suits, civil suits involving wrongful death, said, I'll tell you one thing, whatever you do, make sure you're going to represent somebody, some plaintiffs, that the, that the victim had some earning capacity in, in the back end of their life post-mortem because you'll never get any damages otherwise. And the case that he used as an example was uh, what they call Torella et al, Alice Torella Romano versus Doris Duke. So Eddie had, Eddie uh, Torella, they called him Eddie in the family, had five sisters, three brothers, and they all lived in New Jersey, middle, upper middle-class Italian Americans. And they uh, asked Doris if she would settle for 600,000, no. Then they asked her, what about 200,000? No, this is when she's making a million dollars a week in interest, <laughs> just refused to settle. And finally, they, they filed a $1.25 million wrongful death action and it was dragged on and on for her lawyers for five years. Finally, in Providence, Rhode Island, the state capital, five years later in June, in the state same courthouse with the Von Bulow, the second trial of Klaus Von Bulow, another infamous murder case in Rhode Island, Newport, Rhode Island, among the wealthy, had taken place. Doris was found civilly liable. So in the in the damage phase, the first part of the trial, two-phase trial. One, you are decided whether the jury decides whether you are liable for the death civilly, as in the OJ case. Remember, he was, if right. the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit or whatever. He got off on the criminal charges through Johnny Cochran, but the family of uh Brown and Goldman sued and you know OJ was found liable and he was on the hook for 70 million dollars in damages which he'll apparently never pay. In this case she is found civilly liable of, for the wrongful death but when they get to the damage phase her lawyer who's a guy named Aram Arabian he was kind of the Roy Cohen of New England in those days he was an unscrupulous lawyer and he denigrated Eduardo to such a degree, make him look like a sycophant and a fool and a ne'er-do-well. And believe me, while the transcript of that case is missing, another thing that was cleansed later on, mm -hmm. I, I have little doubt that he played the gay card in 1966. And if you were a gay man in Providence, Rhode Island, in front of an urban jury, you were half a man. And, and I'm not saying that, that that's the truth. I'm just saying that was the prejudice of the day that that permeated us for years and years until the gay rights movement began to change things. But nonetheless, so Eduardo's family, listen to this, when they finally did the damages, $75,000 was the total award. And even though he had 20 years of earning capacity, that year he earned 42,000 that year alone. So if you just, do the math on how and his Hollywood career was taking off. So the, and they demonstrated all that. But nonetheless, her lawyer so denigrated him, this gay man, that the award was seventy-five thousand plus interest. And what when the lawyers took their cut, there were five lawyers I think representing the Torella family. 
each brother and sister got $5,620. And when I heard that, I said, you know what, as bad as it was that she killed him, that was almost as bad. And so that is what, uh, Charlotte, what drove me forward as I wrote this book to try and, you know, tell the truth for on behalf of Eduardo Torello. Incredible, you know? Absolutely fantastic. I have one, one couple, couple last questions for you. Sure. Did, the, did anybody try to stop you from publishing this book? No, and but I'll tell you an interesting thing. Chapter 34. Now, again, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask people if go go to peterlance.com right now when you can or whenever you watch this, and you'll see that uh, if you scroll down right on the main page, you'll see the you know an article. And we were like number one yesterday on one of Amazon's bestseller lists. It's really great. And there is a chapter, a link to chapter 34. The book has 35 chapters. I call chapter 34. Four, the cover-up continues and it starts with none other than whatever happened to baby Jane there's the, the whole story we just did it's got a picture from the movie of the car crashed against the gate of Falcon Lair you know but the Newport Restoration Foundation which uh, rough point this estate just had its 20th anniversary as a home museum okay it supposedly looks exactly as Doris left it the last time she was there she died in, uh, in 1993, at the age of 80, so many years ago. And then they opened her this rough point as a museum around the year 2000, okay? <clears throat> so they have a tour, takes about an hour, and it's a fascinating place full of works of art that Eduardo Torella curated for her over the years, priceless works of art. Never once in 20 years, from anything I could tell, interviewing former tour guides, etc. did anyone ever mention the name Eduardo Torella? Because just as the photo was selectively removed, there's only one photo of Eduardo and Doris. I don't know if you can see this, but see that photo right there? Um, mm -hmm. that, that's Eduardo, that's Doris Duke. That photo has apparently been removed from Getty Images archive. I got, I, I got a copy of it because it was in Stephanie Mansfield's book in 1994. Two, I believe, and at the time it was uh, Bettman Archive, and then Bettman Archive was bought by Corvus, and then Corvus was absorbed by Getty Images, and they did a thorough, believe me, they would have liked to have charged for the use of that photo, and they did a thorough investigation, could not find it. So that's the only image of Eduardo Torella and Doris Duke that's known together. So again, Sanitize the record, right? His New York Times, her obituary in the New York Times that ran three quarters of a page mentions him in one line. Her obituary in the LA Times, which is twice as long, he gets two lines and they say that she was cleared in an inquest. There was no inquest. Mm -hmm. So the point is she succeeded until now in erasing him. So to answer your question, no, no pushback uh, when I was writing the book because in the law of libel, or first of all, you cannot defame the dead, but let's just, you know, defamation is the broad category. Slander is spoken uh, defamation and libel is printed or broadcast defamation. So if you say something that injures the reputation of an individual and to a certain degree, a corporation, you, they can bring a lawsuit, but this is the key. Truth is an absolute defense. So this book has 60 pages of endnote annotations. I mean, it's meticulously, and believe me, and the book was reviewed by the same lawyer that did three of my HarperCollins books, it's meticulous in its research. So truth is an absolute defense. The other thing is uh, that um, even if you make a mistake, if it involves a public figure or a public official, you, uh, you, they have to prove what's called actual malice, that I knew it was wrong and I still published it. And just impossible because I'm super careful with what I do. However, the Newport Restoration Foundation, I'm gonna do a little show and tell here. It's probably not gonna show up on camera, but I, I just urge everybody to, uh, to get the book. First of all, this is a shot of the, from whatever happened to baby Jane, okay? That's <laughs> right there. Charlotte was way ahead of the curve on that one. And then, uh, I don't know how well this is going to show up, but over over the year, over the 
after they found out that I was doing, uh, I, I kind of came out, if you will, on the Newport Facebook group in 2018, announcing that I was going to do this story. Okay, right? I should just turn off that other light. This is like so much better lighting right now. So anyway, uh, the uh, Charlotte, the, this is an entire wall that was put up as an exhibit in at, at, at Rough Point for not just one year, but two years after never mentioning him. And it, it lies. It says that they were going to dinner that night when we know they weren't. And at the very end of the thing, it says that the Torella family doors settled with them after a few days of trial. Absolutely untrue, a lie. And it's a lie to me, in my opinion, that defames the Torella family who are still mm -hmm. living today. So, uh, so the Restoration Foundation has done that, but then they carry cover up to another level. What they do is, uh, this is a shot of the gates, the, the top shot. That's how the gates look for 50 years. You see they're fully intact. The top yeah. shot was the top shot was taken on the Ides of March, uh, two days ago in uh, 2019. Then they had an accident, uh, a catering truck hit the gates and then they were split in half. So they took the gates down. That happened in November and yet they never got the gates fixed. Now you'd think it was the 20th anniversary that they were gonna open in May 1st. Big year for the uh, Rough Point Museum. Why not get the gates fixed? Well, this is what the gates look like now to this day. It's like a little fence that you'd see in a cow pasture. See yeah, that? I was gonna say, yeah. The August oh, Rough Point Estate, that's it? So the point is, that, what are the gates? They're evidence, right? Not, not that anybody could bring criminal charges, but the gates are evidence of Eduardo's death. And now here's the, here's the ultimate kick in the head. So just before we went to press in late November, right before they were gonna lock down the, the, the estate for the winter, close it down, I asked the fellow to go in and take a shot. And I said, could you, are the gates anywhere? And he found the gates hidden in the estate in the corner under a tarp, okay? So that's, those are the gates, that's that part. And then there's one other part that's wild. In the book, we talk about one of the things I found out is where were they going that night? They, the chief said they were going to dinner, which is on the wall. No, they were going to pick up this artifact right here. It's called the Reliquary of St. Ursula. And it's a, it, anybody that's got any Catholic uh, upbringing will know how weird Catholics are when it comes to relics. And I'm a former altar boy, so I can say that with authority. <laughs> and the Catholic Church reveres relics or bones of saints. And, th and this happened to be a very famous reliquary uh, carved in the 15th century of St. Ursula, who was one of the most famous saints in history. Uh, the Virgin Islands were named by Columbus because she was martyred with, uh, uh, the legend is that she was with 11,000 virgins who were killed by the Huns. Couldn't have been 11,000, but if, even if it was 11, it was too many. And so she was a martyr and there's a little in the chest of that work of art, there's a little like, you know, cavity with a, with a little window and you can see this bone, okay? Well, after my pieces in Vanity Fair where I talk about this, that was in July, in August, look at, look at, they took the reliquary away. <laughs> they got rid of the relic. Not only did they hide the gates, they hid the reliquary. Now, why would you do that? How ham-handed is that? Do you mm -hmm. know what I'm trying to say? However, is it not in the tradition of Doris Duke cleaning up afterwards? I mean, that's what that's the ethic that she lived by, and that's what all her surviving minions seem to uh, to do. So this is an ongoing story. That's why I've been. I, I wrote a letter to the editor in a local paper last week about this, and I said, "Listen." So so they channel uh, a great guy named R.J. Heim a reporter for WJAR, the NBC affiliate in Providence, and all of which is on peterlance.com. You can find it. Uh, there we Over go. Over in the corner. Yeah. There's, a, there's a four four part series last week. This guy did It's like little mini 60 minutes. If you add the whole thing together. And, and so he got a statement from the Restoration Foundation and they said, I'm summarizing, but they said, we have neither the capacity the capability or something like that to investigate Peter Lance's findings. Now, what is a restoration foundation, but a, a, 
a foundation dedicated to historical research and analysis. I mean, that's kind of like what they do. That's what they restored all these colonial houses. They maintain Rough Point. They have several other uh, properties in Newport of historic significance. Now, so you say, well, do they have the money to do it? Guess what? They're worth $75 million, this restoration foundation. And I got their tax return, which I put, on, I have it on peterlance.com. I have a link for their nonprofit tax return. The top five executives last year were paid almost 750,000 collectively. So you're telling me that you don't have the ability to go into my book piece by piece and knock it down if you think there's something wrong and tell me about it? I'll change it if there's something you think I'm wrong about, but I'm not wrong. This, this book is truthful and it restores the reputation of a gay man who was mercilessly killed and then had his legend mercilessly destroyed. That's fabulous. I want to thank you. This hour blew by, I'll tell you. Yeah. Wow, we're done already. I can't, it's even more than an hour. Yeah. Thank you we for just being kept, so patient, yeah. friends. We kept rolling right along. I want to get you back on, like you said, I really do. I'm going to, I'm going to order this book tonight. And I'm going to read through it, and I'm even going to fix this video up a little more. I'm going to take some of the photos out of the book and you know place them in there so we can sure. show people and that all that. And we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll... try and do if you do that, at least give the credits for the photo credits. I'm very careful that the people. I will do that. Credit. Yeah, as a you journalist, know, but, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, let's get let's get let's get as many people the next for the next program. Okay. As possible, and just whatever you can do in your vast social media uh, footprint, uh, Charlotte. Sure. Yeah. Be, because you know, this was a labor of love. It would probably take me two years to break even on what this book cost, but it sure. did so much of a benefit just to do it. So, sure. All right. Absolutely. Absolutely. But thank you so much.